Well, I'm glad to spend my first weekend ever in St. Charles, and I want to welcome DeKalb, Blackberry Creek, and Streamwood Bartlett. I hope to meet you someday too, especially Blackberry Creek. You sound delicious. <laughs> We're talking about work, right? A six or seven sermon series on work. And to understand God's plan for work, we first have to review the big story, right? And you know this because the whole series is built on this. It starts with creation, then there's a fall where everything goes terrible, and then there's redemption. Creation, fall, redemption. That's the big story of the Bible, the big story that God is telling. A couple points here. Redemption matters more than creation. It just does. In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus said, what's it profit a person? If he gains the entire world, yet loses his soul, right? What can compare with not going to hell? Redemption matters most, but redemption is aimed at creation. The word redeem means to restore. What is God restoring? Creation. Redemption aims at creation. Acts 3.21, Peter said, Jesus must remain in heaven until the time comes for him to restore all things. The Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. As Christians, we don't pray, Lord, take us away. We pray, Lord, you come. Right? Almost the last verse of the Bible and the very last prayer is Jesus. Come. Come already. So redemption matters more than creation, but redemption is aimed at creation. Redemption also needs creation. Our whole faith hinges on the Son of God becoming fully human. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Christian faith is an earthy, physical, worldly, in the right sense of that term, worldly faith. Redemption needs an incarnation. It also needs a resurrection, which is physical. The most spiritually, heavily-minded church in the whole Bible was the church in Corinth. They were so spiritual, they looked down at Paul, they said, we speak with the tongues of angels, but Paul, you're pretty boring and pretty kind of pedestrian. They were so spiritual, they didn't believe in sex. They said, don't get married. If you are married, get divorced. If you can't get divorced, at least don't sleep with your spouse. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians 7 saying, guys, there are advantages to being single, but not for the reasons you think. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, they said, because the physical is bad, they said, we can't believe in a resurrection. And so Paul says, you can tell he's angry because he says it twice. If there is no resurrection, because that's earthy and physical and bad, then Jesus has not been raised. And if Jesus has not been raised, we're still in our sins. Congratulations, Corinthians, you are so heavily minded, you've just lost your salvation. You can be more spiritual than God. Redemption is more than creation, but it's not less. In fact, the entire story of the Bible, it's physical and earthy. There's a story that I think really nails the tension. It's in John 21. After the resurrection, and Peter is waiting for Jesus to appear and give him, give him his marching orders, and he says, I'm going to go fishing. And six of his friends say, we'll go with you. So they go out in the Sea of Galilee, they fish all night, and they get skunked. Because in the Bible, every time you fish all night, you always get nothing. That would have bothered Peter not long ago. You fish all night, you're tired and cranky, you got nothing to show for it. 
but I'm pretty sure he's okay with this because Jesus is alive. And just last week, the world has changed. So he's kind of, he's okay. But then there's this shadowy figure on the shore. He says, hey guys, try the other side. And so they throw their nets on the other side. Now their nets are breaking with so much fish. And Peter realizes, hey, that's Jesus. So what's he do? He puts his clothes on. So apparently they fish in the nude. And he threw his clothes on and jumped in the water. And he's heading towards Jesus. Why? Because it's Jesus. He's God. He's the Redeemer. He matters most. But what does Jesus say? Peter, go back and help your friends. You see, redemption matters most, but redemption sends you back into the world, back into creation. So Peter is helping his friends bring in the fish. And you know how many fish they caught? The text actually tells us. 153. Do you know what that means? In the presence of the resurrected Christ... Someone's counting fish. <laughs> Who does that? Probably Thomas. I can't believe it. 21. No, fishermen do that. Jesus counts more, but the fish still count. And doggone it, we will count them. And I love this part. Jesus said, give me some of those fish. And think about this. Just days before, our resurrected Lord went back to heaven from which we still await his return. He made breakfast on the beach. He built this roaring fire, let it settle, the coals are hot, and baked some bread and fish over that fire to prep Peter for that really hard conversation. Peter, do you love me, the Savior, the Redeemer, God, your Lord? Do you love me more than all these? Feel the tension again? Jesus, God, redemption matters most, but not at the expense of creation in the world. Redemption aims at creation. Redemption needs creation. So to understand your work and my work in light of redemption, we first have to do a, a, a little bit of groundwork with creation. So real quick, a, a couple big points about creation. First, the Bible tells us creation is good. Right, you open your Bible, the very first chapter, seven times God said it's good. The last time it's very good. Everything God made is good, with a possible exception of cats. <laughs> Send your letters to Pastor Clayton Keenan. He's waiting for them. So creation is good. Creation is also our home. In Genesis 2-7, we read that Adam, the Adam, comes from the Adamah. The name Adam means red dirt. So when you have a child, the most biblically accurate, theologically correct name you could ever give your child is clay. Or dusty. If you have a girl, sandy. Or terra, that's terra firma. Right? We are earthlings for heaven's sake. The world is our home. And it's not just our home. Someday, it's also going to be God's home. The Bible ends in Revelation 21, verse 3. The, John sees a heavenly city coming down out of heaven to earth. And he says, now the dwelling of God is with men. And God will live with them. God with us. What is that? Emmanuel, right? We've got to stop reading that name backwards. Emmanuel does not mean us with God. It means God with us. This world is so good 
it's going to be good enough for God. Heaven and earth will literally, as Joy to the World says, heaven and earth will become one in the consummation. Let me explain why I think we've often missed this as Christians. There's, you know, sometimes we feel this tug of war between our human life and creation and our jobs and our family and our Christian life and redemption and salvation. And we feel like they're always being pulled apart. And we think our Bible's telling us that. So I want to teach you something which is the most exciting thing I've ever discovered in my Bible study. And if you see this, your Bible will make sense and your life will make sense. And you'll get past a lot of that tug of war you feel. So to set this up, you have to, I just have to explain this, that you've noticed this, right? That the same word in English, the same word can be a noun or sometimes a verb. It can be a thing or it can be an action. Like the word rock. Rock can be a thing or it can be an action. We will, we will rock you. Or hammer can be a thing you hit a nail with. Or hammer can be a verb. Do not tweet when you're hammered. It will not sound so impressive when you sober up. Right? Understand the, the idea there? So now look at 1 John 2.15 where John and God tell us, do not love the world. And often we read that and think, like, watch out for stuff. Watch out for things. Don't love the world. But what does the word, word world mean? For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, these come not from the Father, but from the world. Lust, lust, and pride, what are those? They're not things, they're sins. When God says don't love the world, he's not saying watch out for ice cream. He's saying don't sin and don't love sin. Now, every good thing that God made, we can abuse. We can make an idol out of it. But now we're talking about sin again, right? Don't sin. Don't make idols out of things. But the things themselves are God's gifts to us. We already know this, right? Take Thanksgiving. Now, back in West Michigan... We can often eat too much at Thanksgiving. Then we waste another three hours watching the lions lose. And we think next year we're going to change and not going to do this. And then we do it all over again. So we know that gluttony is a live possibility on Thanksgiving, right? But I've never heard a prayer like this. Lord, guard our hearts this day from the sin of gluttony. Temptation lies on every side. There's turkey and there's ham. There's salads both tossed in cranberry. Those potatoes will sweet and mash, and there's pumpkin pie and pumpkin chiffon pie. Lord, please protect our hearts from sin and forgive the hands that prepared our temptation. <laughs> Wouldn't that prayer end with a guy wearing the mashed potatoes? Right? So we know this, right? Every good thing God gave is a gift from Him. And we must not abuse it, we must not sin with it, but we, we must enjoy it. We have this idea, though, that. Somehow, God's against pleasure. I have a friend, Connie, who's a really fantastic portrait artist. And she's, she's good and she enjoys it. But she said, I, I battled with all the hours I spent in my studio because I enjoy what I'm doing and I'm good. And, but I'm supposed to take up my cross and follow Jesus. And how does this count if I enjoy it and I'm good at it? The best she figured was, I guess I have to follow Jesus in some other place, not in my art studio. And she picked this up in church. I was talking to some, another seminary professors about a year and a half ago, and one of them said he's walking to school that morning, and the sun is rising, and the birds are tweeting, and he's just, he's thanking God for being alive. Then he said, uh-oh, have I just crossed the line? 
Am I enjoying this world a little bit too much? Have I just sinned? Let me tell you, you cannot enjoy, keyword wholesome, any wholesome pleasure you enjoy, you cannot enjoy it too much. Every wholesome pleasure you enjoy, it was God's idea first. God came up with the entire idea of sex and chocolate and strawberries and strawberries dipped in chocolate. That was him. Why would we ever think God's against pleasure? He invented flavors and colors. He wants us to enjoy this world that he made. Now, we can't enjoy pleasures in the wrong way. We can make idols out of them, putting our hopes and dreams in them, asking them to deliver something that they can't possibly deliver. Then we ruin them and ourselves. One big test for that, I think, is whatever you're enjoying, are you enjoying it with an open hand? Is it something that you can give up? If you're enjoying it with a closed hand, this is mine, I must have this thing, now you've got an idol there, and now you're sinning. But if it's a wholesome pleasure that you're enjoying freely with open hands and you're sharing it with others, don't ever worry you've crossed a line. That pleasure comes from God. When, when God tells us don't love the world, he's saying hate sin. He's not saying watch out for enjoyments. Another example of this things versus actions is 1 Peter 2.11, where Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in this world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Many Christians read that and think, I'm an alien. I'm an exile. I don't belong here. When I was a kid growing up in church, we used to sing this fun song. Somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place for those who love him and obey. Anybody? No? Um, Carrie Underwood has a song. This is my temporary home. It's not where I belong. This is mainstream. Watch out for Carrie. She has this song, My life is spinning out of control. Jesus, take the wheel. Another song, My boyfriend's cheating on me. I'm going to carve my name to his leather seat. Take a Louisville circle to both headlights. Maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. How come my life is spinning out of control? Jesus, take the wheel. But it's not Jesus, take the bat. My boyfriend, I got this one, Lord. I'll take care of this. No, I, I like Carrie, obviously. I know more of her songs than I should. Um, but, but just saying that this is mainstream, that this, we don't belong here. I call this Martian theology. We actually think we're Martians, that we come from outer space, and we're here for a while, and praise God, someday we get to go back to outer space. That's not what the Bible teaches. It does say, if you're a Christian and you, and you die, praise God, your soul goes up to be with the Lord. But you don't get stuck there. You return. If you're a Christian, you believe in the three R's. The return of Christ, the resurrection of the body, and the restoration of all things. So when Peter says we're aliens and strangers, what kind of alien are we? He says, abstain from sinful desires. We're moral aliens. We're not alien creatures, not alien beings. We're alien to the sin in this world. Another way to say it is, our problem is sin, not stuff. The stuff, the pleasures, the things that God gave us, those are his gifts to us. We should hate sin, but not the earth. So the point is, the Christian faith, it's earthy. It's physical. It's, in the best sense of the word, worldly. 
And so God's plan for our work begins with his plan for this world. Creation is good. It's our home. It's also where we go to find the meaning of life. Why are we here? Genesis 1.28 and 2.15 say, God made us in his image to rule over creation. God put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, work it, take care of it. If I was God and made this beautiful world, I would have told Adam and Eve, please, just don't break anything. But he didn't. He said, make something of this place. Stamp your image on it. You are here to steward this world on my behalf. And the whole plan was for Adam and Eve and their children to take the borders of Eden and keep expanding it until the entire world was filled with the knowledge of the Lord. We contribute to this in what Luther and Calvin called our, our callings or our vocations. This is a big part of what Luther was after. We just celebrated last year the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Let me just quickly tell you how Luther came upon this discovery. In Luther's day, only the monks and the priests were called because they were doing the higher, the spiritual things, the things that counted more, most. And if you really wanted to please God, you would give up everything in this world and aim higher and try to satisfy God. So Luther did that. He left law school and became a monk, but he realized you can't give up enough. Do you know how holy God is? How can you give up enough to satisfy that? God's standards are impeccable. I could never be that righteous. He tried, though. He, he slept without covers. My wife does that, too, but she says that's because I hog them. Um, he would go without food. He, he would confess sometimes for six hours straight. And his confessor said, Luther, come back when you've done something. Murder your parents. These aren't even sins. You're just wasting my time. Your problem is you don't love God. And Luther said, you're right. I think I hate him. I'm trying to satisfy God, and I just can't do it. He had several nervous breakdowns, and then through studying scripture, he said, but that's the point. That's it. Salvation is nothing I achieve. Salvation is something I receive. I can't give up enough to satisfy God. I receive his gift of salvation in Christ. And suddenly he could breathe. He got his life back. And he started talking about callings and saying that priests, and monks are not on a higher spiritual level. We all, the ground is level at the cross, right? We all have the same value before God in Christ. And what this does is it levels the playing field of the Christian life. Never apologize to anyone for your job as long as it's contributing to creation and serving your neighbors, as long as it's a wholesome job. Don't ever feel like you're a second-class Christian because you don't make it onto the stage or onto the platform. God does not have second-class Christians. I was at an ordination this Thursday. One of my friends was getting ordained. He said he used to be an engineer. And when he was an engineer, he said, this engineering, it, it's neutral. It's not bad. But you don't get crowns for that. You only get rewarded when you're doing stuff for church. And he said, that's basically four hours a week for me. So four hours a week, I'm earning crowns. The rest of my life, I'm just being an engineer. Luther in the Reformation said, no. We're all called to follow Jesus. Now, how that cashes out depends on where you are in life and your situation. So for me, I'm called to follow Jesus just like you. But then I follow Jesus, first of all, as a husband, a father, a church member, a professor, 
part-time preacher, neighbor, citizen, brother, uh, son. These are all the ways that I serve Jesus. So by the way, when you think about your callings, don't ever fall into the trap that if you're not paid for your calling, somehow it doesn't count. Your most important callings are the ones you don't get paid for. That's how you know they're most important. In fact, you'd be insulted if somebody tried. If I'm driving back from a romantic weekend in Traverse City, and my wife says, man, what a, thanks for that weekend. I feel your love, and I feel like it's worth about 30 bucks. Do you have change for a 50? Like, no, you, you don't pay me to be your husband. I, I need to do that for free. If you bring someone to church and your pastor says, thank you for bringing that person, I think they're going to stay, here's a gift card to Arby's. First of all, Arby's? But no, you don't pay me. I do that for, by the way, church member. We have to value church membership way more than we do. As that great theologian Beyonce once said, if you like it, put a ring on it. Right? Don't just date Jesus, marry him. And some of you need to join this church and belong to the body of Christ. So if you ever lose your paid job, if you ever retire or the recession hits and things beyond your control, you lose your job, do not feel like you've lost your most important callings. There are still people who need you. There's a church and family that need you, neighbors who need you. Your most important callings are still unchanged. We've got to believe this. Uh, a fine Christian once trying to encourage my father, I have three brothers all in business. He said, you must be so grateful to God that one of your sons is doing something of eternal significance. That's me. <laughs> now that's terrible, right? It all counts the same. And if we learn nothing from the last re recession, we need people in jobs. You don't have jobs, you don't have a town. You don't have a town, you don't have a church. We all need each other doing our callings for the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's talk now about, this is a series on work, what about that career, what about that job you have? Uh, here's, I think, the big question to ask when you want to find out what's the value, the spiritual value in my work Ask yourself, what does my work make possible? What does my role in my company and what does my company make possible for the world? If you're an accountant, you're in the integrity business. Your job is to keep everybody accountable. It's in the word, right? So, so that we know the actual money we have. If you're working in a restaurant, you're not just serving food, you're in the hospitality business. If you're in customer service, you're in the business of solving people's problems. If you're selling insurance, you're, you're, in, you're insuring safety for families who need that, that safety net, right? Think about what, am I, what is my role, what is my business, what are we making possible for the world? How does what I do serve my neighbor and develop creation? That first command God gave us back in Genesis 1, 28 and 2.15, to make something of this place, to guard the garden and protect it. How does my job develop creation and serve neighbor? Answer that question, and you will realize it's more than just a paycheck. It actually counts. You'll be rewarded someday for how well you do that job. Martin Luther said, we are the mask of God. John Calvin said, 
God doesn't often answer our prayer request with this naked arm that reaches down from the sky and just plops what we asked him for on our plate. But God, by using us, Calvin said, dresses himself. We are God with clothes on. What a privilege. When you go to work, even if you're paid for that, you're serving neighbor, you're developing creation, you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ, it counts. When someone serves you and meets your need, Luther says, you thank that person, then you realize they're also the mask of God, and you thank God who met your needs through that person. We are free to change our careers, at least in the West. If you don't like your current job, you're free to change it. But just be encouraged, even if your job that you have right now is not your dream job, it's not all that you ever planned planned for or wanted, just know it still counts and it will still be rewarded if you do it with all your might. Your job does not have to be spectacular. How do you lay up treasure in heaven? Certainly by coming to church and reading your Bible and praying and witnessing and all that. But don't you lay up treasure in heaven anytime you do anything that Jesus rewards? And what does he reward? He said, even a cup of cold water given in my name will not lose its reward. Think about the Apostle Paul. His mission was to be a missionary, but he supported himself by working with leather and making tents. Would you have bought a tent from the Apostle Paul? If I needed one, sure. Because he was doing it for the Lord Jesus. And even though Paul didn't think my mission was to make tents, when he made tents, he did it with all his might, and it counted. So right now, I'm preaching a sermon. This counts. Yesterday, I'm, I'm fixing my mower, and I'm not handy, and it worked somehow. And, but that counts too. And if I do that for the Lord, that counts just as much before the Lord as preaching a sermon. As Gerard Manley Hopkins said, to lift up hands in prayer gives God glory. But a man with a dung fork in his hand, a woman with a slot pail, give him glory too. God is so great that all things give him glory if you mean they should. So let's mean they should. Let's intend all of our work the glory of Christ. And this is true even if you don't happen to like your job. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul addresses slaves, lowest on the totem pole in that culture. He says, slaves, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. How could Paul say to a slave, you're not just serving your master, you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, that's Colossians 3.23. In Colossians 1.15-17, he said Jesus Christ is the creator. That means it's Jesus who back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 told Adam and Eve and their children to make something of this place. So slaves, you literally are serving the Lord Jesus Christ in your job. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21 and 22, Paul says, if you're a slave, get your freedom if you can. But if not, you're still the Lord's free person. See, if you're in Christ, you're free to do whatever comes before you. Uh, my new life verse, and I change them every couple years, but my new life verse is Colossians 2, 9, and 10, 
which says Jesus Christ is the fullness of God and you have been given fullness in Christ. I preach this to myself several times every day because here's what it means. Who I am, who you are, is who we are in Christ. Our value, our meaning, our significance is fixed, spoken for. You cannot add to it and you cannot take away from it. Full stop, period, end of story. That frees us to try stuff. If you start a business and it goes gangbusters and you're in the cover of magazines, praise God. But you know what? Nothing has changed. If you start a business and it goes bankrupt and you lose your house, that's a tragedy. But still, nothing has changed. Because who we are is who we are in Christ. We don't have to change the world. Just change the world that God has given to you. I think we're finding um, people now in their late 20s, I'm told by some of my counseling students, that they're having increasingly people coming in their late 20s who are really discouraged in life because they were taught since they were little that they're amazing and special and world changers. And now they've graduated from college and they, they got a job in middle management and they kind of look like their parents. And they're looking around and think, wait a minute, I was special. I was supposed to change things. My life is pretty ordinary. Good. That's okay. We don't have to be special because who we are is who we are in Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says in verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that you won't be a bother to other people. Like, Paul, are you lowering the bar? Make it your ambition to just live a normal life? But what if we did that? You've noticed the culture's changed, right? The culture used to like our values, but maybe not our beliefs. Now they really don't like biblical values. They often say Christians are bigots and hateful people. But wouldn't it say something if every time anyone wanted anything done, they said, you know what? Find a Christian. They're the best lawyers, the best plumbers, the best surgeons, the best doctors. They do a, fair, a good job for a fair price, always on time. You see, you don't have to be spectacular any longer to just stand out. Just be normal. Just do your job for the Lord. And that creates its own platform. We can turn even jobs we're not crazy about into our own little Sistine Chapel. You know that story where Michelangelo was told to paint the ceiling of the small chapel? He didn't like Pope Julius II, so he ran away. The Pope pulled him back. He didn't want to do it, laying on his back, painting a ceiling of a nondescript chapel. And we think he maybe painted one prophet giving the medieval finger to a guy who looked like the Pope. So he got his point in. But, but he made something that, that, he made the Sistine Chapel. You've seen this, right? You've got on a public bus and the driver is whistling and singing and all these strangers are now, it's a little traveling community. A, a mailman who's cheerful and talking to people, you, you, you can make something even an ordinary job. Have you ever eaten in a Chick-fil-A? It's just a fast food restaurant, but it's, it's special when you eat there because, because that's what they're going for. So your job, whatever it is, it really matters. It matters to Jesus. It matters to us. Because of creation, we're commanded to make something of this place. But it also matters in light of redemption. 
the, the story starts in a Garden of Eden, right? But it ends in a city. How do you get from a garden to a city? Culture. People doing their callings for the Lord. So when Jesus returns, he will not pull out a giant eraser and say, whoa, 6,000 years of human cultural development, that's impressive. Back to the garden, start over. It looks like we enter the, the new earth at whatever cultural level we've achieved. And in some way that we can't comprehend, it seems that like a master artist may unfold some squiggly lines of an apprentice, adding depth and splashes of color, so God will incorporate our feeble efforts into the culture that is on the new heaven and the new earth. The Bible says the end is the new creation, the new earth. Isaiah 65, 17, 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13, Revelation 21, 3, John, Peter, Isaiah, they all say the end is a new earth. So quickly, here's, here's the big question. Something's new, right? Something's different. It's called new, and something's still the same because it's called the earth. So what's new and what stays the same? We have more questions than answers, but here's, well, 2 Peter 3.13 gives us a rule of thumb. Peter says, we look for a new heaven, a new earth, the home of righteousness. When Peter looks at the new earth, what stands out as new to him is not any new thing, but righteousness. Remember our things versus uh, actions, nouns versus verbs? What kind of word is righteousness? It's not about things, it describes actions. So when Peter saw the new earth, he thought the new earth, it's essentially this earth that's been fixed. God says something similar in in Revelation 21.5, the voice from the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. Notice God does not say, I am making new things. No, he says, I'm taking things that are already here and I'm renewing them, I'm fixing them. So I think the new earth is probably this world that's been fixed. I, I would not be shocked if there's a Lake Michigan on the new earth. Ann Arbor will be gone because that's part of the fall. I'm, I'm an unrepentant Buckeye. But Lake Michigan probably should be here. Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. That was not a metaphor. He meant that literally. Get this, if you're a Christian, you don't need a bucket list. Forget being frantic, I gotta do everything this, because I'm not coming back. If you're a Christian, you're coming back. I'm saving bungee jumping for the new earth when I get my spiritual body. No need to do it now, right? You're returning to this place that's been fixed. If you say, but I've had a really hard life, I don't want to come back here. Okay, think with me. Everything you do not like about your life, you can trace it all the way back to the fall. When Christ returns and the curse is reversed, and there'll be nothing not to like here, right? I love August, the best eating month of the year. The peaches are in, the the blueberries. But every peach I've ever eaten has come from cursed soil. You haven't tasted peaches yet. You haven't seen the color blue and how it pops. We live on the other side of the fall. We live on the other side of an apocalypse, right? Hollywood knows this, all these apocalypse movies like Mad Max Fury, Frozen. Um, (laughs) we, We live in a world that's been broken. 
And we're longing for Christ to return and fix this place. That's the Lord's prayer. Lord, you come. So here's the rule of thumb. Again, more questions than answers, but what will the new earth be like? If something belongs to creation, expect it to be here. Because redemption restores creation. If something is part of the fall, expect it to be gone. Because that's the point of redemption. And so we see that even culture survives the new earth. In Revelation 21, verses 24 through 26, John says, the gates of the city are never shut. That symbolizes commerce, trade, people bringing in stuff in and out of the city. Isaiah 65, 21 says, on the new earth, they will build houses and plant vineyards. They'll live in their houses and eat its fruit. Again, the Christian faith, it's very earthy. I'll say this, if the new earth is too different from this present earth, then this earth has not been redeemed, it's been replaced. Just like you and me, if, if our resurrection bodies are too different from these present bodies, then we have not been redeemed either. We've been, re been replaced. But that's not the Christian hope. It's not for replacement, it's for redemption, it's, it's salvation. So everything you don't like about your life now will be gone and creation will be fully restored. So here's the point of the gospel. It's not between heaven and hell. It's between hell and here. Would you like to live here on this restored earth forever with your Lord and everyone who put their faith in him? Then repent of your sin, the sin that's killing you. Put all your faith in Jesus and all this literally will be yours. You will inherit this world. Why wouldn't you want that? If you're not a Christian yet, what are you waiting for? This isn't even a, a close choice. On the new earth, we'll never bottom out and get bored. There'll always be some new song to create or sing, some new dish to make, some new place to travel to, some new person to meet and get to know. The new earth is being fully human and fully alive. If you like being human and you like living here, then turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ. Here's the payoff of this. Two things. If you get this, here's what you should walk away with this morning. First, I hope you feel liberated. You don't have to be a preacher or a missionary or get paid to serve Jesus for your life to count. You are not a second-class Christian. My father was one day, once when I was younger, considering mission work. He said, you know what, not for me, I'm, I'm not a good preacher, but he went on to become the best finished drywaller in Northeast Ohio. There's no shame in that. He'll be rewarded for that probably more than if he tried to be a preacher, which he's not, right? Be yourself, feel free. You're in Christ, we're all equal. You're allowed to do what, what you enjoy doing, what you're good at and what the world needs. Be the person that God made you to be. It all counts now, freedom. But it all counts now. So it's also about lordship. There are no timeouts in the Christian life. You can no longer say, my church, my Sunday morning, that counts for Jesus. But Monday through Saturday, that's for me. I give Jesus my offering, the rest of the money, that's for me. I wake up in the morning, read my Bible, pray for 10, 15 minutes. The rest of the day, that's for me. No, God cares about all of it. He cares about what we're doing right now, absolutely. He also cares how easy you are to live with and how you do your job tomorrow. 
there are no timeouts because it all counts now. Your life, sometimes it may seem small, but please know, God will judge you and he will reward you just as much as if you were Billy Graham. There are spouses and parents and kids and coworkers and customers who need you. People only you can reach. Serve them well for Jesus' sake. And someday, your works will rise with you to be rewarded with you. Let me end with Paul's payoff verse. 1 Corinthians 15, an entire long chapter devoted to the resurrection of Christ and our future resurrection. Here's the payoff. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Father, thank you for Jesus. We would be so dead and so hopeless if we did not have him. We can't create our own meaning, our own value. We, we can do nothing except putter around and then die. But you sent Jesus, who as we sung this morning, the perfect one who bore our penalty in our place. And so we, we trust him. We put all of our weight, all of our faith on him. We put all of our chips on Jesus. And because of that, we're free to live, free to enjoy even the small pleasures of life without apology, without this low-grade residual guilt. We know this is your world. This is our Father's world. And you put us here to steward this world on your behalf, and you want us to have as much pleasure as we can. We also want to make sure in our enjoyment that we live every moment of every day for the glory and honor of your Son who gave his life for us. In his name we pray.